I thank God that I was raised in the CD. It just felt like there was always somewhere to go. It felt limitless. I mean, it was just brown people everywhere. I stopped at the Black and Tan many times that night. Oh, it was the best barbecue in the world. But we used to call it Nasty Brothers. But you couldn't get a loan outside of that. They called it redlining. She said, but it's only one thing. They don't let women buy commercial property. Only men. Like one minute I'm living in a neighborhood where I know everybody and everybody knows me in the next minute. It's a very loving community. Like my parents have been in their house 70 years. I mean, where are you going to buy crackling from? Everybody's like, oh yeah, you just got to go to the promenade. It was, it was black people everywhere. Everything was here. I mean, everything. Welcome to Shelf Life, a podcast that uses community stories to amplify, preserve, and learn from the voices, experiences, and histories of Seattle's Central District neighborhood, also known as the CD. I'm Myla. I'm Jill. And I'm Dominique. We're three people who didn't grow up in the CD talking to folks who did. My grandmother was a seamstress. He was one of the first employees at Nordstrom's. I had been at the post office for 30 years sitting in that same chair. Employers were using black workers as strike breakers. My grandmother cleaned house all of her life. So then he went to Boeing, and then I went to Boeing. Then I got laid off. He worked for the street department. We were putting irrigation pipes down. We were driving tractors and trucks at 11, 12 years old. And I would go through the clubs and mop their floors at night. How many uh, blacks do you have working on this construction project here? Go deliver PI newspapers around the neighborhood. Daddy worked at Todd Shipyard for 43 years. My mother managed to get a job as a housekeeper. More than 100 African-American workers with hard hats surrounded that job project and demanded that the job be shut down until they had African-Americans employed there. For most of the 20th century, Central District residents, especially African Americans, faced significant job discrimination. People had to be resourceful if they wanted to make a living, and many ended up working multiple jobs or working below their skill level. People had to fight, on the picket lines and in the streets, to force open doors and gain access to opportunities they deserved. In this episode, we'll hear stories about work, where people could work, where they couldn't, and what they did to change that. My name is Gary Robert Hammond. My father had the idea that it was time to move his family from under the uh, Jim Crow and bring them to the Pacific Northwest. So he was a military person at first. And uh, he took several jobs, different jobs. He ended up at the post office. And he worked because he he had all his boys. He worked a lot. So he was one of the first employees at Nordstrom's. He cleaned their stores, and he went on to sell shoes. And he had all of us working the stores. That's when they were Nordstrom Best, and there was five of them. And I laugh about it because we had to go out in the North End, and we had to go to Bellevue. So we would clean, and we cleaned the one in Northgate. And then he'd do the one downtown, University Village. Then he'd go to the post office and work. I was 11 years old 
one day and we were all eating dinner. That's when you ate dinner together and you ate breakfast together and did all that stuff. And he um, looked down at me and said, boy, you eat too much. I need to put you to work. So I, I joined the crew. And so, of course, my mother's like, well, what's he going to do? Oh, I'll find something for him to do. So I cleaned the bathroom, cleaned the windows, and picked up paper and dumped the, the, dumped the ashtrays. Coming up, we didn't understand it. But as my brothers and I got older, we realized that's a great thing he did. My name is Michael Masayuki Takawa, and I was born in the Minidoka concentration camp in Idaho, southern Idaho. You know, most Japanese kids when they're growing up, uh, during the summers we would go down into the Kent Valley where that place used to be just covered with nothing but farms and there are a lot of Japanese farms there and we'd all go there to work and pick crops in the uh, summertime but the farmers would come in like Denny Tanaka would come in and drive around the city and pick up all these kids that are going to go pick crops for them then drive down there We'd all go out in the fields for six or eight hours. We'd all get back in the truck and come back home in the evening or afternoon. And before that, what I did is I worked at Takuda Drugstore up there at 18th in Yesler. And when I was 10, I, I used to get up before I went to school at Coleman. I would uh, get up about 4 o'clock and then go deliver PI newspapers around the neighborhood. It was a big route. It went from Days Street down by Coleman, or the African-American Museum up to 29th Avenue and then down to 27th Avenue. So that was like a huge area, and that was all in the dark. It was all good. The only thing that was bad, I remember a lot of times when I was out there to collect for the paper, and I used to get stiffed quite a bit. I don't know, there was something about it. I liked, I liked getting up early, and I liked getting out there doing something moms philosophy was that if you want extra stuff than the basic stuff that I can buy from you, you better go get a job and pay for it yourself. I sure as hell didn't have an appreciation of how much she was sacrificing, going to work and taking care of us every damn day and all. I didn't realize her sacrifices until many years later. Ken's gas station, Kenny Fukutami, 1625 East Jester. They got new townhomes there. This is Daryl Lockhart, who grew up in the Central District. Kitty was the first job I ever got. I was 16 years old, and I worked for him for a year, bought my first car. It was during the gas crunch of 1973. To show you how brilliant of a man he was, a lot of the people in the community were thinking that he was being insensitive to other people in the community, but he wasn't. He was actually just being a good businessman. He would have his regular customers, not just Asian people, but black people and white people as well, that were his regulars. And some of those people would buy gas on credit and pay him at the end of the month. So when the gas crunch came, he would reserve gasoline for those regular people. And the other people in the community didn't understand that. Well, what are you, why aren't you selling me any more than this? Because I have my regular base. These people had businesses as well. I remember Mr. Johnson, who owned a janitorial service. He had a brand new Ford van. That's why I remember. He would come in, and I would fill him up. Kenny had strict rules about who could get a fill up and who could not because of the shortage, because he would only sell so much gas per week. The gas lines would go four, five to six blocks back around the corner. He would go, okay, Daryl, it's almost five o'clock. 
you know what you gotta do? Go back 10 cars or go back eight cars. So I was the scapegoat. I'd have to have the sign and count 10 cars back. <laughs> Sorry, this is it. And they would freak out because sometimes they'd be sitting there for 45 minutes to an hour waiting on gas. And here comes this young kid with this sign and pins the sign on the back of the car in front of him. It was something that I'll never forget. My name is Vivian Phillips. I was born in Seattle, Washington. So I grew up right here, literally. So my father had a third grade education and saw the world and was one of the smartest men I ever knew. He moved from being a Pullman porter to becoming a merchant seaman and then went to work for the city of Seattle and was in the Department of Transportation, essentially. So it used to always be so much fun when there were parades. My dad was the one that took the signs out to close off the streets, and um, he did well. So I wasn't the best kid. By the time I was a junior, one of the counselors said, you know, what do you like to do? And I said, so. I like to sew. So they were like, okay, great. So we're gonna put you in this program and part of the program allows you to go to work. So you can do half day at school, you can do half day on a job and make some money. But it was all connected, right? So the program was Blues Illustrated Boutique. So there was a group of us who were highly skilled at sewing and we made all the clothes that were sold in the boutique. And Miss Lindsay Macklin was the teacher there, and it was Miss Macklin that wrote in my yearbook that I had the depth of perspective and the skill to succeed, and that changed my life. It changed my life. One thing that all of those stories have in common is that they're about young people getting jobs in the neighborhood at businesses that were owned by people who lived in the neighborhood or by family members. For adults who didn't run their own business in the CD or work for someone else who did, getting steady jobs in Seattle was tough. And when they did get jobs, they rarely received equal treatment to their white counterparts. I'm Stephanie Johnson Tolliver, born here in Seattle, Washington. My family came to Seattle as early as 1913. My grandmother was a seamstress among 101 other things, but she worked at a dress shop downtown in downtown Seattle. It was a place called Grayson's uh, Dress Shop. I can remember going into that shop and the owner uh, knowing me, greeting me, um, very friendly. All the women on the floor um, were white women. And then I'd get ushered downstairs and around the corner and in the back where all of the seamstresses were, all black women. You know, they're just working away feverishly on alterations and whatever else, you know, they needed to do. But, you know, it, it felt comfortable there for me. Uh, my grandmother loved that place. She actually retired from there. And it was right in that area, just a little south of the Bon Marche or Macy's now. She would um, tell me lots of stories about working there, but also um, shopping in downtown Seattle. 
There's one story that really stands out for me. She went shopping for gloves at Frederick and Nelson. She was allowed to try on the gloves, but only if she bought them. So she had to buy them, take them home. If they didn't fit, then too bad because she'd already put her hands in the gloves. Uh, The white women could try the gloves. Stephanie's mother worked for Boeing for 35 years, so her family story kind of maps generationally the job opportunities that were available and how that changed over time. Of course, that story is also interesting because her grandmother made clothes for a shop downtown, yet wasn't allowed to try on clothes downtown. Who did they think made those gloves and dresses that only white ladies were allowed to touch? This next story is from an interview we recorded with Cecil Beatty and his daughter, Phyllis Yasutaki. Like a lot of African Americans who migrated from the South, Cecil moved to the Seattle area in the 40s to work in the shipyards. After the war, his wife found it difficult to find a job that actually corresponded to the many skills she had. You couldn't get jobs uh, other than uh, manual jobs, you know. The job when I came here that most people jobs had was in the, uh, running on the railroad as a waiter uh, down on the waterfront uh, sailing. But you go to Bamache, uh any of these places, uh, try to get a job. Well, we can give you a job in the basement, ironing clothes, they take them out of the box, you know. And my wife was, uh, she could type 70-some words a minute on the old typewriter before electric typewriters were invented. She'd go go to these places like Penny's or what have you, take the test. Well, we don't want anybody that smart. Then she worked for the uh, Port of Seattle, and she passed the test for supervisors. Why are you too young to be a supervisor? So they wouldn't give her the job as supervisor. She was very smart. My name is Enya Wakoma. I was born in Seattle, Washington, University Hospital. How Seattle had sort of coalesced its civil rights priorities was around housing equality and access to, to jobs besides la- you know, menial labor and service jobs, which up until that point, over the almost 100-year history of Seattle, black folks in Seattle had been relegated to primarily service jobs, with the exception of the times when employers were using black workers as strike breakers. Okay. It was the only time that black folks could get actual skilled jobs in the industries is when they were being used as strike breakers, which placed a lot of tension between um, skilled black workers and labor unions. And the labor unions were almost, were exclusively white. They were white exclusionary labor unions, which means that their policy was not to accept anyone who wasn't white, which, you know, pretty much kept uh, black Seattle in a state of economic apartheid. As Inye makes clear, job discrimination was a big part of civil rights struggles in Seattle, alongside the fight to end housing discrimination. In the early 60s, the Seattle chapter of the Congress of Racial Equality used civil disobedience and community organizing to challenge discriminatory hiring practices. Phyllis Yasutaki, whose uncle was Walt Hunley, remembers participating in those actions as a young person. We used to, um, my uncle was chairman of Corps, and uh, wherever there was a Safeway, there was a trade well in Seattle. They were always right across, and they wouldn't hire black people. So Uncle Walter and a bunch of Corps members, he'd say, come on, we're going to go. We would go into the store. Stores at that time actually closed. (laughs) 
<laughs> they had a closing time. We go there like at 5.30, 5.45. They close at 6 and fill up dozens of carts of perishable things. And uh, I'd just be running around the store throwing stuff in Uncle Walter's cart, and he'd say, no, 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 things that have to be put back. I said, everything has to be put back. He said, no, tonight. <laughs> you know, don't bring no canned goods or loaf of bread. You know, bring some ice cream and, and, and uh, hamburger and cheese and stuff and milk that has to go back. In other words, people would have to stay over time. So you'd get, fill up all these carts full of perishables, roll up to the counter, and then walk out the door. CORE had a large white population of members. So most of them were white except for me and Uncle Walter. And, and so, you know, nobody uh, hassled them at first until they showed up with a big cart full of ice cream, cheese, eggs, milk. So that meant the staff getting off of work couldn't leave. They had to go and do it and get paid overtime and cost the store money. And then Safeway, eventually Safeway um, caved in and, and signed a contract to stop uh, discriminating against people. While grassroots organizing managed to open up job opportunities in some sectors, the skilled trade unions remained almost exclusively white. It was nearly impossible for black tradespeople to get into unions and work on union contracts. One of the leaders of the movement to desegregate trade unions was Tyree Scott, who founded the United Construction Workers Association. Tyree was a community leader who changed the city in so many ways and who sadly passed away in 2003. Michael Fox worked with Tyree for years. Tyree Scott, he had been an electrician in the Marines. And he returned uh, to Seattle and uh, was working with his father. And it immediately became apparent to him and a number of others that the skilled trades were almost all white. Those unions had a uh, workforce of probably a thousand each, and there were less than 10 African Americans in each of those trades as journeymen. So uh, the tactic that was developed were job shutdowns, and these were right out of the Civil Rights Movement playbook. One of the most memorable took place at the Medgar Evers Pool which is the public swimming pool adjacent to Garfield High School. That project uh, was being built in 1968 and 1969, and of course it was named after Medgar Evers, the civil rights hero who was murdered in Jackson, Mississippi, and it was uh, ironically being built by an all-white workforce in the heart of the center of the African-American community at 23rd and uh, Cherry and more than 100 African-American workers with hard hats surrounded that job project and demanded that the job be shut down until they had African-Americans uh, employed there. Beyond working in the trades or in the service industry, Central District residents eventually found that they could get work through the city, county, or federal government. Uh, my name is Lottie Cross, and I was born in Oak Ridge, Louisiana. Uh, I'm the eighth child of 12 kids. My mother and father were sharecroppers down in Louisiana. So we had a laundromat drive cleaning place on, on 23rd in spring, and we stayed there seven years. We, got, we had a lot of business, 
but it was just seven days a week. We didn't have no time. It got to be too much. So then he went to Boeing, and then I went to Boeing. Then I got laid off, and so I stayed off work like two years. And then when I, my unemployment ran out, then I told him I need a, a job. <laughs> so he said, why don't you try for customer service at King County Metro? So I did that, and I got a job at Metro and customer service. It's, uh, it was awesome. I loved that job. I love customer service. I love people. And that's why I retired 31 years later. <laughs> and at that time, we had books, big old books, just this tall with all the routes in there. Matter of fact, I didn't ever think that we would ever go to computer. When they told me, we're going to computer, that's not going to work. He came down with this little floppy disk, and I, it was a computer sitting on my supervisor's desk. And I was, he said, eventually I'm going to give you this floppy disk and you're going to have to bring whatever I need on here. And I said, oh, Lord, I'm going to have to learn how to do this. It was hard to get rid of those books. I mean, really hard, because I knew those books. Matter of fact, I sit up and knit and crochet when I was on the phones. When somebody tell me where they were and where they were going, I could just give it to them. Did Martin Luther King Award up there? I ain't never thought about myself getting no award, like Martin Luther King Award for King County. So that was a celebration. We had it at the Middlemore Hall, and they invited everybody. My church came, my neighbors came, all these committees I was on came. I thought, now you know, this is awesome. My name is Narvella Jackson. We lived on a farm in Oklahoma. We had a few relatives out here and we came up here in a two-ton truck. So that's how we ended up on 25th. You know, after I graduated from high school, I went to Seattle U for a year. I was going to become a home ed teacher. Hated it. Hated it, hated it, hated it. <laughs> Worked for the post office for about five months after that. Hated it. <laughs> so I ended up going to uh, Seattle Community College, and I was always good at math. That was my father's forte. They recommended that I go into computers. Now this is back in the 70s. You know, computers are as big as this room. <laughs> so I took county, and Larry, my brother, he recommended that I do some volunteer work at one of the community programs, Seattle King County Opportunity Center. So I went down there and volunteered to do some volunteer work in the accounting department. A couple weeks after I started volunteering, they had an internal audit. And so I worked on them. And what you learned in school is that everything had to be perfect. So a group of three of them came back to meet me, and they ended up telling <laughs> my boss, the head of the accounting department, that he should hire me. And all the years that they had been doing the internal auditing, the cash accounts had never been reconciled to the penny. 
And so that was how I got my first accounting job. Once Central District residents had access to middle-class jobs, they then had time to participate in community mentorship. I worked at the uh, East Madison Y. We take a group of girls. We had the biggest camping program in the city out of that little YMCA. I go to all the elementary schools in this area and the kids, the girls, I take them camping, especially. Then I take the boys. And then my first real job was with uh, SOIC, Seattle Opportunities. I got a chance to be a counselor there. The whole program was to take underemployed or unemployed and untrained people and get them training. I worked in that program for a few years and then I had a chance to go work at Franklin High School in the school school system as a what's called a homeschool liaison. Basically, it was really a glorified uh, truant officer because we would track down kids and why they weren't going to school. And I'd find out stuff. I'd hang out in pool halls and find out where they are. And then I went to go work for the Human Rights Commission, the special program doing mediation. So that's how I got involved in mediation in 1975. No one did mediation. And because of where I was raised and where I grew up, significantly, without a doubt, led me to the path where I'm at and and my career path and what I've been doing. If it weren't for the fact that I grew up in this neighborhood, in this community, uh, I don't think I would be where I am today. I don't think I would be the person I am today. Over decades, national and local grassroots organizing did a lot to improve job opportunities for Central District residents. But on this project, we like to link the past to the present. And in this case, it's important to point out that Seattle and the country still have a long way to go in leveling the playing field for African-Americans seeking employment. A study by Northwestern and Harvard Universities that came out in 2015 found that white job applicants received 36% more callbacks than black applicants. And we can't talk about African-American employment in America without talking about incarceration. According to the Prison Policy Initiative, 40% of the country's incarcerated population is black, while only 12% of the country's population is black. Endless studies demonstrate that getting a job after being incarcerated is extremely difficult. And that brings us back to the Central District today, a neighborhood from which Black residents are being displaced at unprecedented rates. In the 70s, African Americans made up almost 80% of Central District residents. Today, that number is approaching 14%. How might those numbers be different if the neighborhood's Black residents had equal access to jobs? What if there were still lots of Black-owned businesses in the neighborhood willing and eager to offer jobs to Black residents? That is one of many reasons that, as J.J. Jackson puts it, it's so important to know your history. Don't forget about the history. That's very important to me. And I think it's important to a lot of the families that come from the CD and their family and their family. The central area has a lot of history for black people, okay? Blacks, we were put here. We were put in a CD. So if you're going to live in a central area, please know your history. Don't ever forget what this community has done 
for the city. You can follow Shelf Life on Twitter at Shelf Life Story, on Instagram at Shelf underscore Life underscore Stories, and on Facebook at Shelf Life Community Story Booth. Engage with us and let us know what you thought of the episode by using hashtag Shelf Life Pod. You can listen to all of our published community stories online at ShelfLifeStories.com. Shelf Life is a community story project that is recording and sharing oral history interviews with people who have roots in Seattle's Central District neighborhood. We are artists, filmmakers, historians, entrepreneurs, librarians, activists, and neighbors. Our goal is to amplify, preserve, and learn from the voices, experiences, and histories of Central District communities. We hope these stories can contribute historical context to the conversations that shape the way we think about change, community, displacement, and growth in Seattle and in cities around the country. Shelf Life, the podcast, was recorded, edited, and produced by Jill Friedberg, Maya Ina, and Dominique Meeks in Seattle, Washington. Original score by Bubba Jones. Special thanks to King County for Culture for the grant that makes this podcast possible. The stories featured in the podcast were recorded in 2016 and 2017 by Jill Friedberg, Maya Ina, Dominique Meeks, Henry Luke, Chieko Phillips, Leilani Lewis, Rachel Kessler, Sarah Post, and Lulu Miles. Thank you for listening. <laughs>